Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. Hey everyone, it's your favorite instructor, Ryan Bradshaw. Just wanted to check in with you for our daily lecture. This is uh, Business 137, Principles of Management, and today we're talking about Chapter 15, which is all about managing teams. But before we get into that, you know, I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes just to check in with you, see how things are going. So how are things going now that we have come to the end of our semester together? We're very close. Last two chapters, last two weeks. You guys doing okay? You hanging in there? Yeah, obviously, you can't respond to me on the podcast, but you can drop me an email and let me know how things are going. Let me know how you're doing, how you're feeling, how's, how's uh, you know, your plans coming together for the summer, and kind of what your plans for the future hold. I've talked to several of you, and I kind of know, you know, what kind of plans you've got, you know, but uh, if you do want to chat or give me an update on how you're doing, <coughs> just shoot me an email. That's great. I, I'd love to hear from you. Um, other than that, we are all still going through this coronavirus pandemic together. I know that I, I was uh, writing about it last night, and I said that it feels like we've been going through this forever, but it's really only been... Uh, depending on when you started really taking it seriously and having to adjust, uh, I think the adjustment period has been about five or six weeks. Um, but, you know, I've been, I guess, focused on it for about two months, solid now. And, you know, so I would just say for me, two months feels like forever, but uh, really two months isn't that long. And uh, I think <laughs> we'll see. I mean, it's, it's going to be a long time yet to have to continue to deal with it. Um, yeah, it's really, it really is something out of like a sci-fi movie. There's several movies that come to mind, but there was one where, I'm trying to think if I can remember the name of it, that they had to like be careful when they went out in public. It kind of reminds me of several, but uh, there's one on Netflix called Bird Box. You probably saw it. If you didn't, it's really good, worth watching. And there's these unseen aliens. You can't see them, but... Uh, they, if you do, if you, well, I don't know if you can see them or not, but if you, uh, if you see the entity, like whatever it is, like a mist looking thing, it will instantly, uh, kill you basically. So, uh, there's these just unknown, unseen elements out there that by the time you do see it, it's too late. Um, and so it reminds me kind of that kind of science fiction type stuff, uh, but <laughs> I do, on a positive note, I do believe we will come to a time where we're beyond all this mess. It may take uh, some time, though. It may take a year or two, you know, for us to get back to kind of a close, closer version to what we were before all this. Um, I have no idea what the future is going to look like with regards to schools and other busy places like restaurants I mean yeah I mean if they reopen everything today I mean I know my family would not be in a restaurant eating tonight you know 
it's just I mean there's still a lot of risk factors out there so I mean uh, but there will be people that they that think you know it's no big deal and they will go back to business as usual so I don't know I mean we have eaten out um, pretty frequently but we could have cooked a lot you know during this stuff uh, this lockdown but the places we've gone to eat out we're trying to obviously get something good to eat too but um, also support restaurants you know um, and I try to if there's a uh, somebody that brings food out to you I try to tip them you know I do tip them just so because I know they're used to getting you know more tip money and you try just trying to spread that you know love around a little bit try to help out where we can to support local business um, uh, but aside from that, um, what else is going on with current events? Um, as far as anything I've watched recently, um, but we did get that new app Quibi. I told you about it probably, I don't know, two or three weeks ago. I haven't watched a ton of stuff on it, but I, my, my dad checked it out. And he really, he watched uh, The Most Dangerous Game recently, which has got... I guess Chris Hemsworth's brother in it, Liam, <coughs> and it's about this group of rich people that hire this guy Hemsworth to basically be hunted, you know, and it's actually based on a story from probably a hundred years ago, it's an old story, and it's called The Most Dangerous Game, I read it in high school, and um, really interesting story, and eventually the hunted becomes the hunter. He, he eventually, uh, you know, stops running and starts hunting, you know, the other guys. So that's kind of a neat script flip. But anyway, um, anything else to mention to you guys? Uh, I will say other news is that uh, registration is still ongoing at Wayne, Season, Wayne Community College. So if you are planning to do summer classes, now's a good time to go ahead and contact your advisor let them know that you are interested in taking summer classes and I, I don't want to like beat this this drum you know to death but I'll say that I really like summer classes myself um, from a student perspective I was a, a student that started in summer school uh, right out of high school I, I went straight to community college the next two weeks later in summer school I had a great experience I mean um, it was to me fun I mean I know that's really geeky but it's true because uh, I had a lot more um, close personal attention from the instructors I know that's not the case it's from an online perspective but um, <coughs> with with regards to uh, smaller class sizes we do typically have smaller classes in the summer and so the big advantage for you uh, is that most students normally take a smaller caseload in the summer. And so, let's say you took two classes and <coughs> you normally take five in the fall and five in the spring. Well, if you took two in the summer, that's one less that you have to take in the fall. Uh, so you could still have the same amount of time in. So instead of taking five in the fall, you could take four because you took two in the summer and you still have that same amount of time. Uh, take, you know, taking place there. And so that's something to think about, you know, it's just uh, another reason I like summer is that if you are taking less hours, it's a lot more manageable. Uh, 
you know, and if you're only taking one or two eight-hour class, uh, eight-week classes, yeah, that's just a lot more manageable than four, five, six classes at a time. I have taken an eight-class semester or a 24-hour class semester, uh, and it was incredibly busy, but it was manageable. I, I wasn't working at the time, but, um, you know, I've also taken some light semesters, and those are definitely preferable. When I got to graduate school, <clears throat> I only took one class at a time, and that's all I could manage. I was working 40-plus hours a week, and um, just... You know, trying to send work, trying to raise a family, and so one at a time is all I can manage. But it, I made it work. You know, you do what you got to do. So, all right, I'm trying to think anything else I want to mention to you before we dive into uh, chapter content. All right, so chapter 15 once again, managing teams, uh, so important. Um, and there's so many like quotes that come to my mind when I think about managing teams. The first one to pop to my mind, my mind is that there are no bad teams, only bad managers. Um, <laughs> because if you step into a team and you feel like, oh, this team is terrible, I can't manage it. Well, you're not even attempting to manage it. You've already, you've already, you know, def been defeated. Sometimes you're in a situation where you don't get to pick your team. And you have to do. You have to still get things done with what you got. So, yeah, there are no bad teams, only bad managers. Um, and as this is a management course, I just want to continue to stress to you that it's your responsibility. It's you, it, it deals with your capacity, your capability, your knowledge to be able to step up and take charge and enact change and challenge people to do better um, you know and I like the term or the phrase firm but fair uh, I like managers that are firm but fair um, and because they keep people held accountable <clears throat> it's good for the business because there are no favorites and uh, people can sniff out inequality very easily we've talked about equity theory in this class and if something is unequitable, people can sense it very easily. Like, I mean, if you're hanging out with one uh, associate and just, you know, having a good old time, talking, laughing, and other associates are seeing that, whether you think that they're looking or not, they're constantly sizing up the manager, trying to figure out who that person's favorite is, what's the politics involved, um, everything, you name it. They're trying to want to, because they rely on you for their livelihood. You have so much power that you could terminate them and take away their livelihood. And so they want to understand you as a manager and try to stay on your good side and uh, you know try to uh, make sure they're doing everything they can to make sure that they stay within that boundary. So and to try to get close to you too, so they can uh, you know be be a favorite. So there's a lot of political type stuff that goes on in uh, a workplace, whether you want it to or not. You know, if, you, if you say, I'm not about politics, uh, I don't believe in it myself. I, don't, I, don't, I think politics are terrible. But even if you say that, if you have that stance, <clears throat> other people are going to have a political mindset, even if you choose not to. So it's important to realize that and understand that as you're managing teams, all these different dynamics are going to come up. You're going to have 
outstanding performers. You're going to have the weakest link. And there's, there's management, there is a, there's theory, there's, uh, there's actually uh, the book content that we talk about, but there's a lot of <clears throat> practical application and on-the-job training that happens. Um, from a on-the-job or practical application standpoint, there's no theory in what I'm about to say. Um, I've heard that you know some places, some people have this management philosophy where if I come into a new management scene, I want to fire at least somebody in the first week or month because that sets a tone that this person isn't playing. You know, uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't know how I feel about that practice per se. I mean, I think that if somebody needs to go, they need to go. I don't think you necessarily need to go in looking to take out somebody, you know, just because you want to make an example. But yeah, you definitely need to, uh, you know, trim the fat, so to speak, or weed out anybody that is not being productive or is a detriment to the team. And so um, by doing that, every time you cut off a weak link, you strengthen the rest of the chain. Think about it like that. Every time you cut off a weak link, you strengthen the rest of the chain. And so this chapter, we're going to talk about some benefits of working in teams, uh, how teams develop over time, key considerations, um, I'll talk about conflict on teams, uh, diversity, and some best practices. So there's a lot of good content in this chapter. <laughs> and so um, just starting off, there's five elements that make off team the makeup team functions. So common commitment and purpose. What does that mean? If we have a common commitment and purpose, what does that mean in a team dynamic? It means that we're all united on a singular uh, idea. Even though if we do a bunch of different tasks, you know, I like I like using there's a couple handful of companies I like talking about. Uh, and you've probably heard me talk about these companies, but look at Chick-fil-A. Um, you know, they're still open throughout this pandemic and they really have adapted very well because they were already doing a good job before. But I think they're even more efficient now because they're just singularly focused on getting the drive-through experience right. So when I, um, if I, I've been probably a handful of times throughout this pandemic and when I go up there, they've got you know, three or four people in the queue line taking orders. Uh, they've got probably a total of seven or eight people outside. Somebody's handling the money, somebody's directing traffic, um, somebody's running food, you got people taking orders. It's really efficient. And this is a, a team with a singular focus. The singular focus is let, we want our customers to have a pleasurable and um, an efficient uh, drive-through experience. I really, yeah, it was awesome. I mean, I, I love like just going through that and even though it's a long line, you know, you look at the line, you think, oh my goodness, it's going to take forever. But that's what you think if you've never been through it before because probably five minutes max is what you're going to wait in line. Um, and that's, it really goes by so fast you don't even realize it's, it's, it's done and over because uh, they're so efficient at what they're, they're doing. They're so singularly focused on uh, making sure that you get your food in a timely manner. Um, specific performance goals. These are things that they write down. That this, these are the metrics we want to hit. And Chick-fil-A does this. Uh, they 
they advertise, at least in Goldsboro, they advertise how many people they served the day before. And so every day they're trying to, to top that, that service goal. Um, complimentary skills. They, they have to have team members that work well together that if somebody is good at being organized but not good at uh, public interaction or social skills, maybe we need somebody that has good social skills to complement the person who's highly organized. Commitment to how the work gets done. And then lastly, mutual accountability. If something goes wrong, how do we get it fixed and move on? Uh, I have a manager in my past, uh, Dr. Barbara Kanigi. Uh, I used to work for her at the University of Mount Olive. And she had a great management philosophy. Stuck with me because when I heard it, it just, I loved it. Because um, in the past, before I got, I got to the University of Mount Olive, um, I had some managers that had this management philosophy that if you did something wrong, you suck and you're in trouble and we're going to hold you accountable for it. And, you know, that knowing that if you know that's your manager's management philosophy, you're walking on eggshells trying to avoid doing something wrong. But guess what? Human beings are going to make mistakes. It's, it's, I mean, I make mistakes. When I, when I write a letter, I have somebody proofread it. And guess what? There's mistakes. There's like a typo here and there. That's just because human beings make mistakes. It's just going to happen. And so um, if you make a mistake, and my personal philosophy is that you should own it instantly and like uh, let people know, hey, I made this mistake. I'm working to fix it. But my, that manager, Dr. Cardini's major philosophy was it's not a problem if it's fixable. I love that. She would say it's not a problem if it's fixable because I would take I would take the problem to her and say, "Hey, uh, Dr. Kennedy, I got this problem," and she would say, "It's not a problem if it's fixable." I love that so much, and I, I, I I've kept that with me. She probably doesn't even know she said it, or she, I, don't, I don't know if uh, if she remembers saying it to me or knows how much that meant to me. But it's amazing how these little quotes. And little ideas like stay with you. This was probably I don't know over ten years ago now that she said this to me, and I just I, I loved it. It stuck with me all these years, and it'll I'll continue uh, using that for the rest of my life. I had I had an instructor at Liberty. Her name was Dr. Ellen Black, and she had some sayings that stuck with me. She said, "The words you choose reflect your soul." words you choose reflect your soul and I, that was such a powerful thing to me when I heard that um, she I mean I was wow I mean she was she's an instructor she's a, she's a professor but she's also a manager she managed that classroom that we were in and when I walked into the classroom the first time I met her she, and started listening to her lecture she had this tone that was very intimidating very scary I'll say, I mean, but she was full of love and compassion and uh, grace and just a very good person. And uh, I was, I mean, I was only one of her students for a short time, but I made such a great connection with her. Um, and just, wow, just a tremendous person. And I learned a lot from her. <clears throat> and it was worth it taking her class just to hear her share these 
uh, these philosophies with me. I mean, it's just such a powerful thing. But the words you choose reflect your soul. As a manager, you have tremendous power, and with power comes responsibility, or at least the Marvel movies has tried to teach us that. And uh, that, that responsibility is to choose your words carefully, because what you say will be analyzed, it will be scrutinized, and it can make or break somebody. Um, so I mentioned to you in class, if you send somebody home feeling bad about the way you treat them as a manager, you failed as a manager. You shouldn't have to send people home feeling bad about how you treat them as a manager. Uh, I know there's going to be hurt feelings if you have to write somebody up or uh, actually terminate somebody. Yeah, you're going to have hurt feelings there. But you should treat them with the utmost respect. Even people that you're having to terminate or write up, you shouldn't. Uh, if you've got an associate that is just a problem associate, you shouldn't rejoice that you're having to terminate them. You should treat them as an individual and respectfully. And uh, if, if they feel bad about it, which they probably will, at least they can say that you treated them with respect. And so that's the task that I challenge you to do. So emotional intelligence is the next thing the chapter talks about. And what is emotional intelligence? What does that mean? It means that you're in tune with uh, basically the other thing, uh, the, the thoughts and feelings of others, and your own thoughts and feelings. Um, and you know, it's really, really um, weird if a manager doesn't have any type of empathy. That's the that's the number one thing that I keep mentioning over and over again in class. It's one of the top considerations that people want in their managers. Somebody that can empathize. You know, like, people have th people have life events. I mean, myself, I'm a teacher. I'm expected to be in class uh, every day at a certain time. But life events happen. Sometimes I get sick. I mean, uh, it's rare. It's usually, like, maybe once a year. Or, or twice a year, I might have to call out to the illness or something like that. But it's not, it's not something I want to do. I'd much prefer to be in the classroom. Uh, but like, for example, this year I got the flu. It's something I, I didn't choose to do, it just happened. And as a courtesy to my students and my colleagues, I needed to be out to protect them because the flu is very, you know, uh, it's very spreading. I don't want to spread that around. And so, as a courtesy to my colleagues and as a service to me and my health, I needed to be out those days. Um, but, you know, I would like for managers to be able to have the emotional intelligence to recognize things happen. And luckily, my managers do. I love my managers and I appreciate them. Um, but some people have this unfortunate event of having managers that if you call out because you legitimately have the flu, well, then they want to retaliate against you. They want to cut shifts or trim hours or find an excuse to write you up. Those types of really, really bad management practices. And uh, I just, you know, it's just, you see this type of stuff all the time. I'll say it once, I'll say it again. If you're in a job where you are having a bad work experience, find another job. I mean, you know, nothing is set in stone. Uh, I know it's hard sometimes to find another job, especially if you like what you do, but, uh, 
you know, it's not worth your health and happiness to work at a job, even if the money's good. I mean, like, I know that's counterintuitive to what a lot of people tell you, but um, no amount of money can buy your health and happiness. It just, it just can't. And if you're, if you're getting compensated to get beat up every day, emotionally and mentally, it's not worth it. It just isn't. And so if somebody is treating you poorly, um, you can try to deal with it internally. You can try to, um, you know, get HR involved if you want or, you know, whatever you, you deem is appropriate. But uh, ultimately, you know, I think it's time to start looking around for something else. Uh, that's what I did when I was at Walmart. I was having uh, kind of a uh, negative experience. You know, there was a lot of negativity. The associates were underpaid, underappreciated, very negative. Um, the customers, the ones that I dealt with, were uh, customers that always had problems that I needed to try to fix. And the upper management was always being negative because that's kind of what their role they thought was. And so when you get negativity from all sides, both um, your subordinates, your superiors, and the customers, Wow, it was uh, just a very toxic work environment, and I said, you know, I, this is not what I'm meant to be doing. I'm supposed to be doing something else, and so I eventually left and got into education. And I'm glad I did because I love what I do now. And so, just it's, I know it's tough to sometimes figure out what you want to do in life, but uh, it's worth it to, to keep exploring until you land on that thing that's just the right fit for you. All right. So we talked about emotional intelligence. Let's talk about collaboration and the eight success factors that the book mentions of um, uh, these really important metrics. So collaboration is when we bring people together that work on a common goal. And the success factors the book mentioned are um, relationship practices, um, collaboration, uh, establishment of a gift culture in which mentor uh, managers mentor employees that is so powerful yeah if you've got a manager that's a mentor <laughs> that uh, is willing to be supportive to work to I guess uh, help them along the way to get promoted and to find career success so so important uh, people will work so much harder for you if they know that you believe in them um, training sense of community um, leaders that are ambidextrous are able to be flexible um, they're good at task and people leadership um, uh, relationship management and uh, role clarity everybody understands what they're supposed to be doing and so let's talk about bruce tuckman real quick he was the guy that came up with the, the stages of group development um, you may have studied in psychology Erickson's stages of life development. Well, this is Tuckman's stages of group development. came about in 1977. And he had this idea that groups go through four or five stages. He started with four, then went to five of development. And those stages are forming, where groups get together. Storming, where groups kind of figure out what they're doing how they're doing it, and try to figure out, you know, uh, uh, you know if this is going to work or not. You know, forming, storming, figuring things out. Norming is when things kind of level off. Okay, we figure things out. We know who everybody is. We know what their strengths are. 
We know, you know, how this team is going to work. And then performing is when we actually focus on that uh, mutually agreed upon goal. And then that last stage that he added later is a journey when we uh, disband as a group. And so there's this performance curve. There's a, there's a graphic in the book. It's Exhibit 15.5, and it talks about the team performance curve. It's where we start off in working groups, and then we get into these uh, proto or pseudo teams. Then we get into a potential team. Then we form a real team. This is where we're getting to the uh, norming stage. And then we get into a high-performing team. And so, um, like, as an example, when I got to my department here at Wayne, I was the rookie, the new guy, and they already had a pretty high-performing team. Uh, but then when you bring on the new person, you got to re reform, right? We're reform, reforming, renorming. Uh, we're storming and we're norming, and so now that I've been here a while, we're we we have gone through that reforming and uh, restorming and norming phase again because we've we've created a new team basically in a sense. We got a lot of the same team members as before, but we add new people. There's new dynamics at play, but then after a while, when we adapt, we understand everybody's role and everybody's doing what we're supposed to do it gets to this high performing stage again. And so if we hired somebody else new, we would kind of go through that again a little bit uh, because um, there's some new dynamics at play. But for the most part, we would uh, you know, keep a lot of our previous high performing things. It wouldn't be a complete you know, revamp, but you get kind of the idea of what I'm saying. And so, um, there was this article that came out called Managing Your Team in the Harvard Business Review by Linda Hill. She discussed that managing teams means managing paradoxes. And a paradox exists in the fact that teams have both individuals and collective identities and goals. Each individual has goals and ideas as to what he or she wants to accomplish on the project. In one career and in one life, the team itself, of course, has goals and success metrics that need to be to meet in order to be successful. Sometimes these can be in conflict with each other. So some paradoxes, fostering support and confrontation among team and members, uh, focusing on performing and then and learning and development. Yeah, so how can you focus on professional development if you're focused on uh, performance, you know, we need you to get things done, get things done, get things done. Oh, take a time out and go to a training, you know, and so <clears throat> that's a paradox. Focusing on getting the team to win versus focusing on getting the individual to win. And so, because individuals have their own agendas, sometimes have their own uh, ambitions, but, you know, how do we manage those individual <clears throat> ideals and manage the team ideal? So, paradoxes, Linda Hill, Harvard Business Review. And so, there is this uh, last graphic I want to talk about today is this idea of the uh, triangle of relationships between the manager, the team, and the individual. And basically, this just shows there's this uh, power, not necessarily power struggle, but there's this power dynamic between each of these elements, between the individual and the manager, the individual and the team, and vice versa. And so there's this connection that make up this strong unit of the triangle, this, this powerful unit. And so it's important to realize that these 
different dynamics exist. All right, for today, we're going to take a time out. We're about halfway through the chapter, and I appreciate your time and attention. Uh, if you do have any questions at all, please don't hesitate to reach out via email, and I will be in touch again soon. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you so much for spending some time with me on the podcast. I hope you got something out of it and learned something that you can use in the world and share with others. If you did like it, please indicate so by liking, sharing, or going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Until next time, I wish you well.